You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Uh, Hey, come on now. Good evening. That's better. Uh, My name's Casey, uh, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're getting late into the summer, and it's how I know is uh, people start showing up later and later. and so um, I, don't, I don't know if we can stop it, so I'm not even going to address it. Uh, as we're getting started, a couple things that uh, I, I just want to make you aware of. And, and so one is, man, we're still working uh, with Theodore Lawrence, uh, trying to make a move to Sunday morning. Uh, they seem really, really eager. Uh, they seem to also have a lot of details they're trying to um, nail down, uh, trying to figure out what exactly they want. Uh, man, we've looked at a lot of different things. We feel like it is a good move um, for us. And there's a couple things we want you to do. First, I want you to pray about that. Like, if that's not a good move for us, I don't want to do it. Uh, we feel like it might be just a little bit more stable for us, and we're hoping we can find a place that gets us to Sunday morning uh, that will house our, our church family, especially in the fall when students are coming back, and, uh, and that can keep us kind of there, stable, like keep us there. And so, man, please, like really, really pray about that. Um, another thing on that is... Uh, you know, to, to meet there, it, it's going to increase cost. And so costs are going to go up. Uh, it's reasonable. Um, I mean, it's roughly, I mean, I'm going to say this, and some of you guys are going to be like, you're going to freak out. Uh, and others are going to be like, oh, it's not a bad deal. Uh, but it's roughly about $1,000 a week to meet there. And uh, I, you know, I, I saw some of your faces. You're like, oh, my gosh, $1,000. Uh, and then I saw some of you guys, like, eh, okay. Um, but, I mean, if you think about it in terms of this, like, I mean, so you're looking at roughly, you know, $52,000 a year uh, to meet 
uh, that's really, like, if you think in terms of a building, like, that's cheap. Like, if we were, like, if we owned a building, if someone just said, hey, take this building, and we had to uh, heat and cool it and pay, you know, to upkeep it, and then, you know, I mean, and probably pay someone to help, you know, clean it and stuff like that, we would spend far more than that. Um, I, I don't know what, what your electric bill looks like right now. I know what mine looks like right now. And so that's something to pray about. And so just something to make you aware, like, that was, a, it's a little bit more than what we were paying while we were meeting in Central. And so in Central, it came to a little bit over $600 a week. Like, I don't know why it was weird and it moved around a little bit. But so it's, it's a little bit more, but that, that was a great, great deal. And so that's just something, like, start praying about um, that, that's super important. And then, and then we need you to do this. We need you to practice uh, Chick-fil-A hospitality. And so I'm going to explain what that is. Not, not closed on Sunday. You can't say, oh, I'm closed on Sunday. I'm not going to show up. Chick-fil-A hospitality. Uh, we're going to be gearing up some more teams. Like we've kind of been limping along because uh, we've had very minimal setup. And so we're going to be gearing up uh, more teams. And when we ask you, like when we look at you and we say, hey, would you like to head up or serve on fill in the blank? We just want you to say, it's my pleasure. Like, that's all we want. We, we, don't, we don't care if you mean it. We just want you to do it. Um, and so uh, we're going to be gearing that up. You know, we want to make some switches uh, or some changes to uh, Lord's Supper. We're tired of this. Uh, we're trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and we're going to need teams for that. Everything that we do, there's, there's teams and there's someone who's on top of that team that if you're on the team, they're working way harder than you because they're, they're recruiting other people to make sure, like, you are, are there. And so uh, we just, it's your pleasure. Just be ready for that. Um, and then one more thing. Uh, as we're kind of gearing toward the end of the summer to make that transition into Theodore Lawrence, uh, one of the teams that we've, we've suffered uh, some loss of leadership and we're like, man, do we even try to recruit that right now or do we just kind of limp out of here, um, is the, the live stream team. And we don't know if that's something we're going to be able to keep up in, in Theater Lawrence. There's a lot of infrastructure problems. And so that, the live stream team, like live streaming is going, to, is going to die for sure periodically. And so we'll still be doing podcasting. And so if you find yourself in a situation, uh, I mean, I don't know if, if like, you're, I don't know if I can be there. The podcast will be up uh, so you can keep up to date. But some of that's just as we're looking at the fall, when we can make that transition, uh, we're trying to figure out the teams that we really need to gear up. And so we're, we're willing to take lots of uh, questions about that, uh, but just remember, it's my pleasure. Um, and so, so, wow, it feels like it's been a little while um, since I, I preached to you, and it, it hasn't been that long. It's only been two weeks. And, and the good news about uh, this is, like, preaching, it's supposed to be like riding a bike. You know, you can just hop right back on it. But the bad news is, I don't know when the last time you rode a bike, like, just riding a bike is not always just like riding a bike. Like, you can just hop back on it, and, like, there's a muscle memory thing where you hop back on the bike, and you just start pedaling, and you don't remember how you learned how to balance and to move, and it just works, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea. This is about two years ago. Uh, I actually had a friend gift me a bike, and, uh, and so I had this bike, and I've been riding around. It might have been three years ago. Hey, when I say just the other day, that is basically any time since I graduated high school. And some, most of you weren't born, all right? So, I mean, so it was just the other day. And so I was riding this bike uh, toward campus, going down Bob Billings Hill. And I came up on a gaggle of girls. I mean, just like, like six or seven girls. And so I thought, man, I'm going to take it to the grass. 
And then I'm going to pull back up, just go right around them. And so I take it to the grass, but when I'm trying to get back on the sidewalk, it did not work out. And I did this awkward kind of fall twist thing, and I just laid there for a second, because you need to know this. If you have a fall, like, I mean, when you're a kid, like, they don't understand why we're like, oh, Grandma had a fall, because, like, I fall every day. It's no big deal. It's different when you get older. Don't just pop up. Like, if you ever played sports, like, if you fall, like, hey, just sit there for a second. Maybe you'll get the foul call. And you need to inventory your life. Am I okay? Like, a checklist, like, I think I can still feel that. It hurts really bad, so it's probably okay. And so I just laid there for a second, just kind of inventorying my body. And all of a sudden, there was all these maybe sorority girls around me. And, I mean, it had to be awful for them. It was like faces of death. Like, we just saw this old guy kill himself in front of us. And they're like, are you okay? And I was still inventorying. So I was like, I just, you know. And they probably were like, Oh my gosh, he might die right in front of us. And so I finally was like, yeah, I think the only thing hurt is my pride. And I popped up, and I got on my bike, and I just rode out of there. I couldn't look at him in the face. And I was like, if, if that's you, I, I'm okay, all right? Thank you. I, I didn't look at you in the face because I didn't, I, didn't I didn't want to look at you in the face. Um, and so all that is saying, like, it's not always just like riding a bike, but it's just like riding a bike. And so we are going to hop right back in where we left off. And, and I want to highlight just a couple things. So last time when we left off, we, we were in Mark 11. And you might have noticed that we skipped Mark 12 and 13. And it has nothing to do that there's not really important things in Mark 12 and 13. But if you recount what we've said week after week as we've been preaching through Mark, is the first half of Mark versus or chapters 1 up to 9, we were focusing on the doings of Jesus. Like Jesus in Mark, it's immediately he's doing this, and then immediately he's doing that. Like he's moving really fast, and we see a lot of action. It doesn't mean that there's not teaching, but like when we went through Luke, we focused on the parables and the teachings, and then we did a series when we focused on like across-table conversations, which usually had a crisis event where Jesus then corrected with teaching. And so we were focusing on the healings and what what Jesus was doing as he was embracing marginalized and broken people and it was causing controversy. As he healed different people, he was showing what the kingdom of God was like and, and we were really putting it like this where we said, listen, he's showing us what we have looking up forward, what we are a part of now because he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, meaning it is coming. It's upon us. It's not fully here. But one day there will be no more sickness. One day there will be no more doubt and no more regret and no more sorrow and no more uncertainty because we won't even have to fear things that we don't fear now that one day the sun will go out because the whole world will be lit by the confidence of Jesus' face. One day it will be so different. And when you see a miracle, you want to press in. What is he undoing? Have I ever experienced that? Have I ever feared that? And one day, oh, one glorious day, one day, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And he was showing us just a little bit of what that would look like. But then Mark 9 came. 
In Mark 9, Jesus looked at the disciples and said, hey, who do people say I am? And like, man, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say, you know, you're prophet of old, like maybe Moses. Some people say like all these different things. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And the very next thing that came out of Jesus' mouth was, yes. And the Messiah must go to Jerusalem. I must go. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be crucified, be killed and mistreated, and then on the third day, raised again. And so from chapter 9 on, we've really been focusing on Jesus walking to the, God, walking to the cross to establish the good news that we can be reunited with God. And so all these things are happening. In the last several weeks that we've been in Mark, like controversy is brewing. Like, it is getting for real. Controversy is brewing. And so, like, we did skip some things. We skipped, like, some teachings of Jesus. And really, like, if you look, like, just look at your Bible. Or if you have your phone, you can use your thumb and just kind of move back to uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. We, we encourage you, you can use the Bible. It might keep you from getting, like, the th- thumb disease thing. And so, but if not, that's, it's your prerogative. Um, but like in Mark 11, you know, Jesus cleared out of the temple and we looked at that. But the first thing they ask him is, who gives you the right to do this? And he doesn't answer the question. This is brilliant. He answers their question with a question. Like if you don't know what to do in a sticky situation, you don't know how to answer the question with a question. Uh, and that's what he does. He says, oh, yeah. Who gives me the right to do this? What do you think about John the Baptist? And they don't know what to do because they hated John the Baptist. But they say, we can't say we hate John the Baptist because all the people believe he's a prophet. And so they're like, oh, we don't know. And so he's like, well, I won't answer either. And it's kind of like a stalemate right there. But then it keeps moving. And so Mark 12, like, you know, Jesus uh, starts teaching right after that. And so he has all these things. Like he teaches the parable of the unfaithful tenants. And if you remember that parable, like the king sends servants to go say, hey, you owe me money, give me money. And they keep beating him and sending him back. So then he sends his son and they kill his son. And so all of a sudden when it's done, like the religious leaders are like, oh, I think he was talking about us. And that's when they decide, oh, we're going to kill him. And so then what happens is Jesus looks at him, they change the subject. Like, you, you know this move. Like, something's awkward, you change the subject. And so, like, they change the subject of politics to avoid, I think you were talking about us, and they're like, hey, what do you think about paying taxes? In essence, they're saying, hey, we are going to kill you, but we don't want to talk about it, it's awkward. What do you think about taxes? So he changed the subject of politics, and then that didn't really stick. And so then they change the subject again, and they talk about eschatology. So in view times, and so it's like, oh, that's awkward. We are going to kill you. Uh, are you pre-millennial, post-millennial, or all millennial? I mean, and like, I just want to say this. Sometimes we avoid the look of God into our hearts. We avoid naming the sin that is inside of us by changing the subject. You can hide so much personal sin by talking about the wrongs of politics or talking about the wrongs of doctrine. They change the subject. And what they didn't know, and what we don't know so often, you don't have to change the subject. When God is zeroing in on your sin, you don't have to 
change the subject because he's not come to condemn. Like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him shall be saved. And so we know that. But then verse 17, it says, For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I know what it's like to want to change the subject. It is God's ever-loving kindness to start to press on something that hurts, that exposes something in your life. And if we are looking ahead here in Mark 14, he's about to look to his best friends, the 12. And he is about to press and say, be warned. There is danger in the heart of every believer. And so, we didn't skip that stuff because it's unimportant you know the other thing we, we didn't skip the very first or we did skip because of the very first part of mark 14 um we have this the story of mary the sister of lazarus and we know it's her because of other accounts but mary the sister of lazarus who takes her life savings that's in perfume breaks it over jesus's feet anoints his feet with oil and then dries his feet with her hair and that was actually pretty controversial. People were like, oh man, that could have been, you know, that could have been sold and given to the poor. And people were pretty upset about it. But Jesus said what she did was beautiful. And every time the gospel is proclaimed, her name will be right there. So I thought we should throw that in because I'm going to declare the gospel. So I just want to throw it in. But we pick up right here. And I've got three points, like I kind of had two weeks ago. I've got a thing with nouns right now. So if you remember two weeks ago... Uh, our points were the donkey, uh, the tree, uh, and the temple. Uh, they're all person, places, or things. And what they said about Jesus. This week, we're looking at the disciples, Judas, and the supper. Disciples, Judas, and the supper. So let's get started. Verse 12. I know you're like, we, we haven't gotten started yet. Uh, we have. Uh, verse 12. It says, and... On the first day of unleavened bread, when, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Now, I want you to hold that, 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 that sentence right there, that verse, because we're going to pull it back at the end. But it designates, like, what happens. The lamb is sacrificed. It says, his disciples said to him, um, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare, uh, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And so, like, there's two possibilities, and I'm actually fine with either of them. Like, there's the possibility that Jesus had already kind of made, you know, pre-planned arrangements, and it was, like, coded. I mean, now, the situation is people are really interested in Jesus. They're either really, really for him and love him, or they really, really are against him and want to kill him. And so it might be that he, like, made this plan. We had this secret code of, like, hey, the dude carrying the huge hydro flask, follow that guy, use the secret passcode, the 
teacher needs his place, and it all works out. Like, that's possible. It's possible because, like, at that time, like, like men didn't carry jars of water. That was, like, women's work. And so that would have really stood out. Or, or it's possible, like, like the donkey, that God, you know, being in the person of Jesus, had insight through the power of the Holy Spirit and just said, hey, we're going to get, like, voodoo, freaky stuff on. You're going to see this guy. He's going to have water. Don't laugh at him. I know it's kind of silly. Follow him. It's all going to be set up. It's all going to be ready. And we see that over and over in the New Testament. Like, we've got we've to deal with that. But, like, what I want you to mostly see here is the same kind of details that happened with the donkey in Mark 11. Where it's like, you two go into the village, find a donkey that's tied up, take it. If someone says, why are you stealing my donkey? Just say, God wants it, trust me, and it worked. And we, we see the exact same thing here where he says, go into the city, find a guy carrying a jar of water, creepily stalk him and follow him home, and then ask him, where's our room? And it worked. Regardless if this is just divine insight or, or some sort of plan, I want you to see something. Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control. In 1906, a book came out. It was called The, the Quest for Historical Jesus. It was written by a guy named Schweitzer. And he takes all this, and I think he, he ignores a vast amount of Scripture. And he basically says, Jesus was a really good dude who taught people to be good dudes. And, and it, what happened was he just poked at the bear. He pushed this Messiah gig too much. And then he has this phrase, and then the wheels of history churned him to death. They crushed him. Got crushed in the gears of history. And like that ignores so much of what we see. Like that ignores that there's an Isaiah 53 that said the Messiah, the Messiah would be pierced and crushed for our sins. Or that he would be like a lamb before the slaughter. Or that he would be cut off from the living. It goes against what John the Baptist said at Jesus' baptism where he stood up, saw Jesus come and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It goes against like all the predictions that we've seen. Like starting in Mark 8 where Jesus says, Hey, the Son of Man. Is going to go to Israel or go to Jerusalem, and he's going to die, but he's going to be resurrected on the third day. Or then again in chapter nine, verse thirty and thirty-one, he says the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be mistreated, and he's going to die, he's going to rise again. Or in chapter ten, right here in Mark, where it says in verse thirty-two to thirty-four, he says it again over and over. And Mark is putting it all here because this is not accidental. Jesus didn't get caught up. This is what we find in the epistles. Lame, son of God, who was decided before the foundation of the earth. Jesus had already made the decision. He's walking toward the cross for the redemption of you and I, because it can never be established any other way. And so we see this like predetermined. We see it moving. We see Jesus in control. And we see here again where he says, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. Find the guy with the water. Follow him. That's where we're going to do this because I'm going to teach you something. And where he teaches first is the disciples. Like, look at this. This is what I, I want you to see. The disciples. Jesus warns the disciples, the 12. He warns that there is a power of sin inside of all of us. And, and so look at verse 17. 
In verse 17 it says, And when it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve. And so the twelve, like that's like the minivan crew. I mean, I guess actually the conversion van, van crew. These are the ones who always had the front row. We know their names. We name our kids after their names. Like, and that's happened like classical name all over. These are the ones that always got the front row teaching, always saw the miracle, unless the minivan crew couldn't fit in. And then you went with the Prius bunch, which was Peter, James, and John. And that was like the really small room. We're like, man, we need some elbow room. But they saw so much. They got to ask questions. They got to see the miracles no one else saw. They got to hear Jesus insult the religious leaders. And then they would say, man, we don't understand what you're saying. And he's like, oh, what in the name of me? And he would like explain it to them. Like they had this incredible access to Jesus. And so like, look at this. Like look at what happened. So this is what he says in verse 18. And as they, so we're in the room now. And as they were reclining at the table, as the twelve were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Like, think about that moment. Like, and think about the predictions of the donkey in Mark 11 and the predictions of the room in Mark 14. Like, like, it's not like Jesus would get an eerie feeling of, like, I think, man, I think one of you guys are whacked. I don't know which one. I mean, it wasn't that at all. Like, if he can pinpoint the donkey and he can pinpoint the upper room, he could have said, hey, one of you, and his name rhymes with Rudus, is here, and I just want you to know, I know, and you need to know that I know, because I'm the son of man, and you've done messed up, you know? I mean, he doesn't do that. Why does he go ambiguous? When he could have just named it. And we actually have this in the Bible. Like, if you, David, after he sins with Bathsheba, he takes another man's wife and he murders Uriah, her husband. And then you have the prophet, uh, Nathan, he comes. And he doesn't be like, hey, someone in this room's really guilty. He starts with a story and then he just calls him out. You know, we have this in the scripture, he just calls it out. You're the guy. And, you know, we, then we get Psalms 51, all these things pour out, like, he could have just said, it's Judas. Why, why does he go, it's one of us? If he knew, why does he go, it's just one of us? Other than the fact that he's telling Judas, who knows it's Judas, because right after Mary anoints Jesus with feet, we have the next three verses before we get here where it says, Judas decided in his heart to betray Jesus. Jesus didn't name him in front of everyone, but he says, I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. And is there a beckoning to say, choose not to do it? You know, look, look at their response. In verse 19, it says, they begin to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Is it I? And he said to him, it's one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. Which means, that's just, it's not like, he's like, it's one of the twelve, you know, as Judas dips it into the dish. Who's dipping right now? I mean, it's not, it's not that. 
It's saying, it's one of the ones who is intimately in this family meal with me. This is not a friend meal. Like, this is not a friend meal. This is a family meal. It's one of our family. Like, it just pulls it closer and closer. But look at their response. Like, I, you know, if I was right, I, I would have expected Peter to say something like, I think it's Judas. I vote Judas. You know, I mean, that's kind of Peter. I would have expected that, but it doesn't. He introspects his heart. Is it me? Is that in me? Would I do that? Is there a limit that, that I would betray you? Like, and what we know is there's going to be a moment where they all run. They all betray him. They all flee. Like it's in all of them. Or, or, or maybe it's like, you know, because Peter is going to do what Peter does. In just a minute he's going to say, it's not me. I'll die for you. And everyone will be like, yeah, I'm with that. I'm, yeah, me too. I mean, and so that's about to happen. I think, I think we have this picture of like sin lurking like a lion in the heart of all of us. I think it's a picture. I think it's something we have to, we have to wrestle with. Because like, look, look at this. Like, look back at verse 19 again. It says, we see two things. They are sorrowful. And then they question. Like they look inside and they see, like there is sorrow because they see Actually, so look back at verse 18. You see the word betray? The word betray, it's uh, paradidomai, which obviously can be translated as betray, but it's also used a lot in, like, exchange. And so some translations will say, you know, handing him over. One of you will hand me over. One will exchange me. And so it's like a commerce word. Like, you look at something, you see its value, and you look at something else, and you're like, yes, I want to make the trade. This is third grade lunchroom. Like, I don't know if you remember, like, that's when you find out who has the entrepreneurial bent, because they always come out on top on, on lunchroom. Like, they're always able to make the trade. And it's third grade lunchroom, where it's like, I have this, but I will give it up for that. And what the warning of this is, there is sin lurking in all of us. For something that seems more profitable. In the same way that all the disciples were in. And I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not saying that if you're saved you're going to lose your salvation. I'm saying lurking in you. Do you see that sometimes we come to God and our wills run parallel. But if they cross I'm scared which one I'm going to hang on to. You know, and we find it like we, we give our lives to Christ and we think, man, it's going to be great. And then all of a sudden the relationship we were hoping in doesn't work. And then we curse God. How dare you? Like, did we give our life to Jesus for a relationship? Or we give our life to Christ because we want our career established. Or we want our past fully justified that we feel right with it. And when it doesn't happen, we curse and we cry because there is this sin of what seems right to me lurking in all of us. And if you're like the disciples and you look inside and you find sorrow, the work of the Spirit of God is working in you. Not the absence of sorrow is what should encourage you. It's the presence of sorrow that you say, there's something scaring me. God, will you do something about this? See, all the disciples looked into their hearts and they feared what they saw. They saw that the given 
they saw that given the right circumstances, they were afraid what they might do. Now, if this is true, like Christians look at me, if this is true, that means like we have compassion for when we see people do awful things because we're like, man, the sin that's in them is the sin that's in me. And given the right paths and the circumstances, who knows what would happen? All grace be to God who has saved me from that. His present salvation is saving me now from the power of sin. Like it produces not not like go light on sin. It produces a humility that just says, meet me at the front. Meet me at the cross. That's my solution. Like, let's just name the sin what it is. Is it me, Lord? And so the, the, the first thing is we see the disciples. Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, there's a power of sin in the hearts of all of us. Because if you see it, see, one way that we ignore that so we don't have to look at it is we do what the Pharisees just did. We change the subject. And so just like they change the subject about, what do you think about taxes? What do you think about eschatology? You know, just like they change the subject with, let's just talk about doctrine, or let's just talk about politics. We change the subject by saying, let's just talk about the sin that's outside of me. Let's don't talk about the sin that's inside of me. Because look at those people, or look at that movement. Look, look at the problem all out there. And so we don't have to change the subject. When the Son of Man wants you to gaze inside, trust Him. He hasn't come to bring condemnation. The disciples. Jesus warned us that there was a power of sin in all of us. Number two, and this was a fast point, because it's really just saying the same thing as the first point. That's a preacher trick, okay? And so, Judas. Jesus warns that there's a little Judas in all of us. Like this is this is really short because I'm just restating it. But but in verse 21, I want to take it phrase by phrase. And so in verse 21, it says he gives the explanation. He says, "For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him." And so the first thing that this you know Jesus is saying he's the Son of Man. So he he's standing with Daniel seven. You know, the Son of Man is this allusion to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where Daniel sees this, this, this vision, and it's like a man, but like a really awesome man. Uh, you know, I mean, you go read it. There's a bunch of crazy stuff in Daniel, but go read it. And so he sees it, and he knows that this man has come to set up a forever kingdom. And he says, the Son of Man is coming to set up forever kingdom. And so he says, listen, I am that Son of Man. I am coming to set up a forever kingdom. As it is written, it's established, it's firm. And so Jesus is the Son of Man whose suffering death was predetermined, already decided. And then the next phrase, look at verse 22, it says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him or for that man if he had not been born. And so, like, Judas's betrayal, like, I don't, we have this problem. Like, it's, it's saying that it was already written, so it's predetermined. So, like, is it, is it God's will and there's nothing to do? Or is it his choice and he's like, yeah, you know, I got Jesus or, you know, I got silver. I mean, what am I going to do? I mean, like, what is it? And I'm just going to say, yes. And I know you're like, hey, that's a, that's a wussy preacher move. And yes, yes, you're qualified. You could do this job. Yes. How do we work out the determined 
predetermined work of God in the lives of all of us and in history itself. And our choosing, our weighing and choosing and the reaping and sowing that comes with us, that we, we know our choices matter because we see it in daily life. Like if we, treat it, if we choose to treat our spouse or our friend poorly, it reaps fruit. Like how do we deal with that? And the answer is we just trust the Bible, and it talks about both. So the first thing, let me say three things about it. It was already written. God knew it. It was determined. But number two, it was Judas's choice. Judas looked at what he wanted, and he made the choice to exchange Jesus for his own ends. He chose sin, which this is what you need to write sin. So many different ways that we could talk about sin. One of my favorite ways to talk about sin is what seems right to me. Like, that's, that's, that's Genesis 3. Like God said, hey, you know, don't eat that fruit. You can have all this fruit. I made this garden for you. I haven't even invented clothes. Like, trust me on this. He says, but trust me on this. With no explanation, stay away from that fruit. But all of a sudden, we're beneath the tree. And it's like, man, I, that just doesn't seem right to me. I mean, do you ever have that moment where your brain is looking at something and you realize, Hey, I've already made a predetermined what I want, and now I'm just trying to figure out a way that we can get there that it makes me look innocent, what seems right to me. The third thing, it says, and God would judge him for his choice. Like, I mean, when it says it's better that he, he wouldn't have been born, it's just trying to say there's judgment. You know, we, we read Romans 1, starting in verse 18, and what we see is there's judgment when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. There's consequences. There's judgment. You know, and, you know, some of that consequences was, like, Judas really messed up that name. Like, Judas was the most popular boy's name in the first century, and now, like, I mean, no, I mean when was the last time you met a Judas? I mean, we, it messed up the name. But the warning is, you either have, you either realize that there's a little Judas in you, but if you don't see it, then you are fully Judas through and through. See, the disciples looked inside and they found sorrow and they came to Jesus. Man, there's a limit to my faith. I know my faith will falter. Is it me? That's how you know the Spirit of God is growing. He's turning over rocks that have darkness on the other side. And he's like, let's deal with this one by one. And so, first the disciples. Jesus warned that there's the power of sin in all of us. Then we have Judas. Jesus warns that there's a little Judas in all of us. A little part that just listens, man, that just doesn't seem right to me. And then, the supper. And so, the supper, Jesus our sacrificial lamb, who would die in our place for those who bring their Judas's heart to him. Like, like this next scene, I'm, I want to explain some about it, and then I want to read it. The, the, the next scene to us, I mean, if you've read the Bible much at all, you're very, very familiar with what this looks like. But if you have it stopped, like, there's a lot of details about the, the Passover that we don't get because, we, you know, Mark just doesn't write them down because he's predominantly writing to, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
to a first century audience that has a Jewish background. And so they knew all of this stuff. And so he highlights some things. If we put it in order of what we know, Jesus is saying a lot. And what he's saying is audacious. And so we either have to take him at what he says he is, like the fulfillment of everything that's before, that he is the son of God who died and resurrected, and now he's offering life for all. Or we have to say he's the most arrogant, crazy person who ever lived. I mean, it's not that he renames all the things in the Passover. It's that he says, hey, I want you to do this all the time and think about me. I mean... What if you had a friend who said, hey, this is my favorite meal, and it's, you know, my favorite drink's water, so every time you drink water, I want you to think about me? I mean, you'd be like, that is so arrogant. Uh, But look at this. So just some things about the Passover. The Passover was observed once a year. It pointed to God's miraculous deliverance of his enslaved people. You can read about it in Exodus, specifically chapter 7. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's not right. Hold on. Notes, notes, notes. Chapter, uh, it's here. I know I wrote it down. Oh my gosh, let's just look. I mean, you know, that's why you got to practice your Bible drill. Um, and so, powerful signs. Four. We start in four. No, 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 we didn't. Uh, Moses before. Yes, seven through 14. I was right. Write that down. Um And and so it starts there, Moses shows up, and what happens is a series of devastating plagues. But these plagues, you know, were were a little bit different. Like the first plagues uh, were all like the distinguish between God's people and Egyptians was made. You know, like it was already made. But we get to the last plague, the plague of of the, the firstborn son, where the Passover lamb, and there was no distinction that was made. You see, when you get to the last plague, you had the plague of light and darkness. And the Hebrew people, they had light. Why, you know, uh, the Egyptians had darkness. Or you had the plague of, you know, all these different... And it was very, very different. But we get to the last plague. The death of the firstborn son. And everyone who woke up either had a dead lamb in their house or they had a dead son in their house. See, if you didn't want a dead son, if you didn't want a dead child, you had to have a dead lamb. And so all of this was building up. The Passover meal was the final plague that forced Pharaoh to free the Hebrew people. In the previous plagues, God made distinction between Egyptians and Hebrews, but not the final plague. And so in the Passover, every household, both Hebrew and Egyptian, either had a dead son or a dead lamb. And so within the Passover, like think about the brilliance of this. So every year as a kid growing up, you would come to the Passover and you would go through the meal and you would do it. And they would say, man, remember all that happened. You know, remember that God did this. And you would talk about like all the different plagues. I mean, think about a kid hearing that. Be like, oh man, that's crazy. But during the Passover, there were four toasts. And so four cups. And so four times you would take the wine and whoever was hosting would stand up and would say something. And so it was cues. And so one of them, like this comes from Exodus 6, uh, verses 6 and 7. One would be the rescue from Egypt. And so the first one, stand up. God saw our suffering and he heard and he decided to rescue us from Egypt. And everybody would toast that. 
The second one would be freedom from slavery. God saw our plight and he decided to free us and everybody would toast us. The third would be redemption by God's divine power when it would say, this is how God redeemed us. And this is how we remember it. And then the, first, the fourth one would be a renewed relationship with God. It's the final cup where it would be like, and now we have a relationship with God because he saved us. And so the cup that we see Jesus first stand up is the third cup. Toward the end of the meal. And the host would use words from Deuteronomy 26 to bless the elements. And so they might say, remember these bitter herbs. That's to remind us that our slavery was bitter. And God redeemed us from that. Or or we might look at the bread and say, remember the unleavened bread. We had to make it quickly. But it was the bread of our affliction that God sustained us through the wilderness. Or, Or they would look at the lamb and they would say, remember the sacrificial lamb that God spilt its blood and accepted its blood instead of the blood of our children because of our because of our transgressions like they would look at all the elements and talk about it and this is where jesus parts script this is where he changes everything and so look in verse 22 and listen for it and when they were eating he took the bread this is the third cup he took the bread and after blessing it gave it to them and said take this This is my body. And so he said, listen, this used to be about the bread of your affliction. My body is about to be encompassed with all your affliction. Take this and remember my body. And then he took the cup. And so holding up the cup, verse 23. And when he had given thanks, he gave it. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so he starts to reinterpret this. And what he's saying is everything that for thousands of years that you have been reading and learning about that, it was all pointing forward to this. Because the death of lambs never saved anybody. It pointed to a lamb of God who could save everybody. And so he's saying, look at this. This is about me. Like John the Baptist said, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I think it's worth mentioning. Like, look at that description, verses 22 through 24. What's missing? There's no lamb. Like, this is not a vegetarian meal. I mean, if that disappoints you. This is not a vegetarian meal. Like, the lamb was a central part of it. If you go back to verse 12, the very, very, it was the day that the lambs are sacrificed. That means they were prepared. You showed up. The disciples either made a huge blunder and like, man, we lost the lamb. Or Jesus didn't even mention it because the lamb was not at the, the lamb was at the table. The lamb wasn't on the table. And he's pointing to himself what John the Baptist said. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrificial lamb isn't mentioned on the table because Jesus was sitting at the table. And then look at the fourth cup. Look at verse 25. Remember the fourth cup is the cup of relationship. We now have a relationship with God. And look what he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. See, and we're going to fast forward a couple weeks. 
Because when Jesus was in the garden, he was praying, Lord, take this cup away from me. He was praying about the cup that had to be drank so that we could have a relationship with God, the cup of God's wrath. And so he holds up the fourth cup and says, this cup is how we get a relationship with God, but it's actually not this cup. But I will drink that cup. And so in essence, Jesus was making an oath. I won't eat or drink again until your relationship is fully established with God, the means by which it will happen. See, that, that oath was, was somewhat common. Like in Acts 23, you know, when you have Saul, you know, Paul, you know, he was persecuting the church, and then he met Jesus, and he started becoming a proponent for the church. Well, that, that ticked everybody off. I mean, he was like the star quarterback for the, you know, for the We Hate Christian team, and he switched over and became the star quarterback for the We're Christians, We Love the World team. And so it made everyone mad. And so there was a group of zealots who said, hey, we won't eat or drink until we kill them. And they were playing an ambush, and they never killed them. So they're still really hungry and really thirsty somewhere. But that kind of covenant, Jesus says, I am the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And the fourth cup that we usually salute and then sing a hymn was pointing to a different cup that I'm going to go drink. And so Christian, we remember that every week when we take communion. Like it's just worth saying a couple things about communion. One, it, it, if you're hungry, it's really unsatisfying. Like, it's not gonna make you, it's not gonna make you full because it's pointing to the future that all the good things in this world, they are so good and there is so much joy and we're actually gonna do a series on joy because I think our joy kinda stinks right now and we need better joy and we're gonna do a series on it. But like, all of that, like, all these things, like, they, they aren't fully satisfying because they're not fully encompassing in the new kingdom. It's there, but not quite there. Like, we need to focus on that. We can actually increase joy in our life, but we need to focus. It's so like, this is somewhat dissatisfying because we were made for more. The other thing I want you to see, it was weird that this was a, you know, this was Friendsgiving. That's, that was weird. This is a family meal. And Jesus looks at this new family, what do they have in common? They have one thing, they probably had a lot of things in common. Some of them were cousins and brothers. But they have this in common. We need Jesus. That's why, that's why we have this incredible thing. Guys, I'm going to blow your mind. If you're a Christian, you have more in common with someone on the opposite political side of everything if they're also a Christian than someone who believes just like you, but they are not a Christian. Because your sins were brought to Jesus and he drank the penalty of them down and you are now connected with him. If you're a Christian, you can be on the other part of the world and you can take communion with a church that doesn't share the same language or the same culture. Like they don't even know what Netflix is and you have more in common than, with them than like the person that you talk about Ted Lasso with. I know it's not Netflix, I haven't actually seen it yet, but everyone talks about it. I mean, you have more in common with them. Because we have this common shared experience that we brought our sin. We actually trusted God when he said, look into your heart. 
There's a little Judas in all of us. There is an imperviating sin inside all of us. And we found sorrow, but we brought it to him. It ties you together to the family of God because it's the deepest thing about you. Your sin runs deeper than anything else apart the grace of God. And so we remember that and we start with the bread and we take the bread and we remember that Jesus said, this is my body, the bread of affliction. It fell upon me, broken for you. And then we move to the cup. And remember what Jesus said. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, Lord, I just want to say thank you. Like when I think about object lessons and visuals and so many things... The richness of that in what you established to show us who you are is profound. All the details that went into place, you wanted, and we have to look a little bit. We might have to study a little bit. We have to try to understand a culture that we don't understand. And Lord, we can actually be saved and not know any of that because the Holy Spirit of God can touch our hearts and we can be convicted of our sin. And then we can look at Jesus and we can say, man, I just trust you. I just trust you and I treasure you and I need to grow in that every day. But when we look more deeply, we see you connecting lines and dots, wanting us not to miss anything, that the plan of God was the hound of heaven coming after your soul. So Lord Jesus, when you say look inside, we don't have to change the subject. We don't have to hide our sin behind political debate or theological debate. We don't have to change the subject and look at other people's worst sin. We can actually let the light of Jesus land in our heart and we can hold it up and we can believe the promise of Ephesians 4 that says, whatever darkness you hold to the light becomes visible and that which is visible becomes light itself. Christian, if that's you, don't change the subject. If you're not a Christian and you feel the presence of God pressing on you, don't change the subject. For the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Father, we need you in Jesus' name. Amen.